This is Gurus, the story of acting. I'm Jeff Zinn. This is part two of the story of Jacques Copeau, Suzanne Bing, and Michel Saint-Denis. It traces the journey of how their approach to actor training came to dominate acting conservatories all over the world and calls into question our lazy fixation on the method. Michel Saint-Denis had been only 16 at the inception of the Vieux Colombier, but came of age soon after the war. He enlisted and served in combat, sometimes on the front lines. In 1920, he rejoined the company as they restarted operations, taking his place at his uncle's side. For the next decade, he would perform essential service as stage manager, administrator, actor, teacher, and eventually leader. Bing and Capot's vision of a training component was in the forefront of their thinking as they went about restarting the company, but the logistics of actually creating a school seemed out of reach. Bing described a moment when that changed. On leaving the theater after a rehearsal of Les Fourberies, where he had been unable to obtain from a young actor the precise coordination of a certain movement on a certain text, the boss sighs a dull roar. Ah, the school. She didn't exist yet. I said to him there in the street, but boss, when you say the school, aren't you talking about a building to be constructed? Well, it seems to me that I can already teach them a few little things. And we set about it modestly, with the means at hand, without having drawn up a program, without, I believe, any ambition other than to have started. Which they did with lessons in movement, singing, and period dance. Students began working with masks, which they also learned to construct. Capot would come in occasionally to lecture on theater history, but Suzanne was in charge, bringing to the effort all she had learned from working with the kids at the Montessori School in New York. The relaunch of Copeau's company in Paris began on a note of high idealism. Rather than employing the typical press releases, he instead summoned his circle of supporters to a series of lectures in which he propounded his vision of a theater that would be the enemy of all lies, and the lifting up of theater onto another plane. But the next three years were a struggle. Audiences and critics acknowledged the importance of the Vieux Colombier. It had attained a kind of legendary status, but the response to the actual productions was mixed. Comparisons were made, perhaps inevitably, to earlier, better work. Michel Saint-Denis' role now was treasurer, charged with managing the mounting deficits. During the second season in 1922, Stanislavski and the Moscow Art Theater toured Paris for the first time. Capot greeted him at the train station, and during his stay, the two men met frequently as equals, sharing their ideas, visions, and concerns for the theater. It was a high point. But once again, the Parisian audience was underwhelmed by the company's output. The only part of the enterprise that gave Capot any pleasure was the school. This was the same year that Harold Clerman, then studying at the Sorbonne, experienced the Vieux Colombier firsthand. The Left Bank Hotel where he roomed with Aaron Copeland was within walking distance of the theater. 
The third and final Parisian season of the Vieux Colombier again landed with a thud as Capot mounted his first entirely original play. Critics pronounced La Maison Natale, or The House Into Which We Are Born, dreadful. It was the final straw for Capot. In his journal, he lamented that the promise of each new season had been promptly deadened, squandered, exhausted by the horrible machine of putting on plays. So, in the gray days of October 1924, Copeau loaded his family into a beat-up Ford and set out for Burgundy, followed by a motley crew of teachers and students. By 1925, they had relocated to the village of pernand Vergalès in the heart of wine country. Maurice Kurtz's depiction of their living arrangements recalls a 1960s commune, with Copeau's second and still secret family installed close by Le Patron. A medium-sized house was occupied by Copeau and his family. A bit lower was Suzanne Bing's house, where she lived with her son Bernard and Cloud. The students lived at the bottom of the hill at the inn, next door to their classroom, which was a large couverie where winemakers stored their surplus supplies. It was during this next phase of the experiment that Michel Saint-Denis came into his own. Suzanne took charge of the classes, which were rigorous, gymnastics at 7 a.m., followed by vocal work, improvisations with masks and mask-making, while Saint-Michel stepped comfortably into the role of actor-director. The acting company began to devise plays, spending whole days immersed in invented characters and storylines drawn from the world of the winemakers all around them. Saint-Denis became obsessed with a masked character named Oscar Nee, which he inhabited 24-7. In the model of ancient Commedia troops, they toured the countryside, performing for the community, the peasants who began referring to them as les copéos, Capot's children. At one point, they played four performances over three days to 3,000 people at a wine festival. It was a celebration of all things wine, with a character, played by Saint-Denis, named Jean Bourguignon, announcing, Yesterday I drank. Today I drink. Tomorrow I shall drink. Did I hear someone say no? Maurice Kurtz writes, and when their half-prepared, half-improvised performance was over, they mingled with the townsfolk in the streets. They were recognized by everyone, questioned and sheltered, feted and fed, adopted by the whole community, and loved by all of Burgundy. This would seem to be the embodiment of the Nouvelle Comédie Copeau had envisioned, a rowdy street theater reaching a new audience. But embittered by his recent failures and burdened by the unmet financial needs of this sprawling new enterprise, he increasingly left the copios to their own devices as he stewed in his study. This partial breakdown was accompanied by a newfound Catholic fervor, which was shared, apparently, by Suzanne. They seemed to have pledged abstinence to each other from this point forward. Lack of money pushed Copeau to return to Paris, where he gave well-attended dramatic readings. There was some irony in Copeau's new one stardom as a solo artist filling large venues, given his reputation as champion of the Bear Trestle and the little theater that was the Vieux Colombier. 
Suddenly, he was fielding offers. In 1927, he returned to America to direct his adaptation of the Brothers Karamazov for the Theater Guild, with a cast that included Alfred Lunt and future group theater member Morris Karnofsky. During that trip to New York, he also ventured downtown to the Christie Street Settlement House, where one of his plays was being directed by a 26-year-old Lee Strasberg. Les Copiaux, meanwhile, were touring Belgium, Holland, and Switzerland. Copiaux's reaction to their growing success independent of him was somewhat dysfunctional, if not schizophrenic. More than once, he stepped away, leaving Saint-Michel firmly in charge, only to return and insist on reasserting authority when he sensed that they were moving on without him. He was what we would today call a control freak. Ever obedient and willing to subordinate himself to Le Patron, Saint-Denis obliged, but inevitably, Capot would again withdraw. In late 1929, a petition calling for Capot to become director of the Comédie Française was organized by the high and mighty of the French cultural establishment. This seems bizarre considering Capot's antipathy toward the old dinosaur, but he seems to have been flattered and encouraged the effort. He went so far as to dissolve Les Copiaux, just as he had shut down the Vieux Colombier. But the fledgling company, now firmly in the hand of Saint-Denis, regrouped in Paris as Les Compagnies des Cans, so named for its score of ten actors, including Bing, and five students. The campaign to install Capot as head of the Comédie fizzled. The company in its various iterations had been training and performing together now for almost ten years. Their repertoire in all that time was dominated by the classics. They had avoided Ibsen, Strindberg, and Chekhov, leaving that oeuvre to others. Then a young playwright named André Obey offered to join the troupe. He was willing, in a way most playwrights were not, to collaborate to work with the company in devising something that would build on their improvisatory skills as opposed to handing them a finished script. What emerged was something of a hybrid. The company of 15 had spent a decade or more rigorously training together, and they brought all their improv skills, acrobatic agility, and deep immersion in mask and mime to their collaboration with Obey on Noé, a reimagining of the biblical tale of Noah's Ark. But once the script, fed by the contributions of the cast, had been formed, Saint-Denis took over. He insisted that the text, now fixed, be treated with the reverence afforded any extant classic. Blocking was also set for his detailed production plan, enumerated in advance. The most egregious violation of the company ethos occurred when an established star, Pierre Frenet, was cast in the leading role of Noah in a transparent bid to boost ticket sales. All of this contributed to dissension in the close-knit ranks of the company. But Saint-Denis, perhaps having absorbed the autocratic impulses of his mentor, forged ahead. Les Compagnies des Cans was officially launched in January 1931 at the original venue on the Rue du Vieux Colombier. In the company's absence, it had been transformed into a cinema and so required reconversion back to a playhouse. Capot made a curtain speech at the inaugural performance, which lent legitimacy to the new company. 
but it also had the perverse effect of undermining their autonomy and Saint-Denis' role as leader. The response was muted. Audiences and critics were also turned off by the star casting, which gave some small satisfaction to the other actors, still grumbling over the insertion of Frenet. Overall, the Paris debut was underwhelming. Ticket sales were weak, and at the conclusion of the season, the theater was once again converted back to a cinema. Perhaps the most persistent obstacles they encountered were the expectations of Parisian audiences, constantly measuring the company against the legend, the myth of Capot and the Vieux Colombier. The tepid reception was especially wounding after the warm embrace they had enjoyed from the winemakers in Pernand. They withdrew from Paris and headed out on tour to Switzerland, playing nine cities in eleven days. It was more work, but the rhythm of touring with bare trestle and trunk was a better fit for them than had been the formal architecture of an actual theater, even a little theater like the one on La Rue de Vieux-Colombier. The last stop on their European tour was London, and this is when and where everything changed. Unencumbered by the mythology of Capot, the audience erupted in astonishment and joy at the exhibition of youthful energy, skill, and theatrical imagination that exploded onto the tiny stage of the Arts Theatre Club in Soho. In 1989, Saint Denis' sister recalled, the audience was on its feet cheering as the cast took countless curtain calls. Tyrone Guthrie wrote that it was like a delightful ballet, only that it had 50 times more content than any ballet ever had. For the next four years, Les Compagnies des Cans bounced between Paris and London. The new work they created with Obey and others that was cheered in England met with uneven responses in France. Finances had always been difficult, and they finally ceased operations in 1935. The long journey of the Vieux Colombier, then Les Copios, and then Les Cannes, was over. But Michel Saint-Denis was just getting started on the next significant phase of his career. Laurence Olivier, John Gielgud, Peggy Ashcroft, George Devine, and others persuaded him to relocate to London. In 1936, they opened the London Theatre Studio. It closed three years later with the onset of World War II, but re-emerged after the war as the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School. Over the next 30 years, Saint-Denis would take the lead in the creation of three more major conservatories, in Strasbourg, in Canada, and finally at Juilliard in New York. In each of these institutions, the curriculum would map closely with what Suzanne Bing first deployed from the earliest days at L'Ecole du Vieux Colombier and throughout the trajectory of Les Copios and Les Cannes. Students of her students, seminal figures such as Etienne de Creux, Jacques Lecoq, and Ariane Manouchkine descend in a direct line from Bing. I began this episode by questioning our lazy fixation on the method and how we got here by summarizing the American-centric timeline of events from the Moscow Art Theater to the Actors Studio. 
We then followed the parallel, equally important, but lesser-known path from France through England. Toward the end of that trajectory, there were significant infusions of method Stanislavski into the Coupeau-Bing-Saint-Denis bloodstream. A Swedish dancer named Jat Malgrum was making a name for himself in Europe when he was invited to join Kurt Jos at Dartington Hall in England. If you've been listening to this podcast, you'll remember that Dartington was something of a hotbed for the arts in the mid-1930s. Michael Chekhov was there with his newly launched young company. Jat Malgrim arrived just in time to cross paths with and be deeply influenced by Rudolf von Laban, who had created his own system of movement psychology. Malgrim took things a step further by combining Laban's theory with Stanislavski and even Carl Jung's character archetypes. He would eventually bring this synthesis into his movement classes at the Drama Center London, where, in a teaching career that lasted into the 1990s, his students included Sean Connery, Pierce Brosnan, Colin Firth, Anthony Hopkins, Geraldine James, Helen McCrory, Russell Brand, Michael Fassbender, and Tom Hardy. Also at the Drama Center, starting in the 1950s, was an American named Doreen Cannon, who had studied with Uta Hagen in New York. Her roster of students overlapped with Yachts to include Pierce Brosnan, Colin Firth, Geraldine James, and also Simon Callow. In his memoir, Being an Actor, Callow described foundering on the rocks of the emotional memory exercise in Cannon's class. An improvisation called for him to catch his girlfriend in bed with another man. I uttered withering phrases, shamed them by my sang-froid, and sulked after the man left, which Cannon trashed with a curt, I don't believe it. Then, probably angry with her denunciation as much as the betrayal embedded in the exercise, suddenly, a noise like a lion's roar came from my throat, and he started breaking furniture. It was Doreen Cannon who opened the floodgates, he recalled. These injections of Stanislavski and the method into the British conservatories might have pointed toward a happy ending of synthesis, but in the run-up to the founding of Juilliard, the two paths came head-to-head in a dramatic showdown. In his recent remake of West Side Story, Steven Spielberg used the West Side neighborhood bulldoze to make way for Lincoln Center as a backdrop for the battles between the Sharks and the Jets. It might be too much to stretch that metaphor for this tale, but the birth of Lincoln Center did set the stage for an epic virtual rumble between Lee Strasberg and Michel Saint-Denis. Planning for Lincoln Center had included a professional theater company and accompanying training component to round out the existing music and dance divisions that had been there since 1904. Well before that educational entity would be formed, however, the repertory theater at Lincoln Center would come into existence with great fanfare. The two men who would be in charge were Broadway producer Robert Whitehead and former group theater member and powerhouse director of Broadway and film Elia Kazan. Kazan saw Lincoln Center Rep Theater and the coming Juilliard Drama Division as an opportunity to expand the domain of the actor's studio, then ascendant, 
and he lobbied hard for Lee Strasberg to be named director of the school. Whitehead had other ideas. He vehemently opposed Strasberg's method, which he felt was too limited. The Rockefeller Foundation, the big money behind Lincoln Center, hired Harvard professor and playwright Robert Chapman, who shared Whitehead's method misgivings, to conduct a wide-ranging investigation into best practices at drama schools internationally. Polling theater leaders in Europe, he found unanimity. Michel Saint-Denis was their man. Strasbourg star, at least as a prospective drama division leader, faded. In 1958, Saint-Denis signed on as a paid consultant and began a process of researching the American theatrical landscape, visiting university programs across the U.S., too cold, and teaching studios in New York, too hot, presenting his findings in a series of lectures and in a written report. He became impatient, however, as construction for the new complex dragged on, and so he accepted an offer to join Peter Hunt and Peter Brook in a leadership troika at the Royal Shakespeare Company. That relationship would last six years. In 1964, the Repertory Theater at Lincoln Center, temporarily housed at NYU, produced its one and only season, which included Arthur Miller's After the Fall and The Changeling by Thomas Middleton. Stumbling badly with the Middleton, Kazan admitted that the company had failed in its attempt to move beyond realistic plays rooted in psychological truth. In his autobiography, Life, he wrote, We never really succeeded in wedding the necessary vocal force, clarity of speech, dexterity with words, and love of the language to the emotional techniques of the Stanislavski Strasberg method. We all needed to be trained, I as much as anyone, in the techniques of what is called style. Michel Saint-Denis' book is entitled The Rediscovery of Style. Meanwhile, searches for a director and faculty for the drama division were underway. Saint-Denis lobbied for John Hausman as a director. Hausman brought in Michael Kahn as head of acting. Kahn had studied with Michael Howard, who was a member of the actor's studio and a dedicated Methodist. So the addition of Kahn guaranteed an infusion of method into the program. He had audited sessions of the directors and playwrights unit at the studio and observed Lee's teaching up close. But Kahn had experience directing Shakespeare in the classics, where he noticed that actors in the available talent pool were sometimes ill-prepared to handle the demanding material. This led him to an appreciation of the need for Saint-Denis' brand of specialized training. The drama division finally opened in 1968. By then, Saint-Denis had suffered two strokes and within a year his health issues effectively sidelined him from active participation. He had arrived with a Bible enumerating the curriculum first formulated by Capot and Suzanne Bing, and that he had been developing since the earliest days of Les Copiaux and Les Cans. After his death in 1971, his widow, Surya, stayed on at Juilliard for several years, serving as a kind of Saint-Denis surrogate and enforcer of the Bible. But change and adaptation were inevitable. The program evolved, with Kahn and others, such as John Sticks, another studio guy, 
folding in Stanislavskian elements such as sense-memory exercises that would have been anathema to Saint-Denis. Nevertheless, it must be said that the acting program at Juilliard still embodies the spirit of Saint-Denis with its focus on style, augmented by techniques that mine psychological truth and emotional availability. Together they make up the comprehensive toolkit of the trained modern actor. But let's return to the original question of whether the method truly deserves the primacy it seems to occupy in our understanding of the actors who take up so much space in our collective consciousness. The complicated truth is that what we have now at the very top of the acting talent pyramid is the result of an admixture of techniques and training methods. The deep core of that training, as advanced in conservatory programs all over the world, began with the French gurus Jacques Copeau and Michel Saint-Denis, who were more than abetted by Suzanne Bing. But the deep vein of Stanislavski woven through those programs should also not be ignored or undervalued. Theater makers continue to strive for the equivalent of a unified field theory. Strong outer forms, the styles, and what appear to be the exaggerations of earlier periods, combined with a sense of authenticity and universal human truth. This synthesis was always the goal for Michel Saint-Denis. He embraced the usefulness of Stanislavski's system while recognizing that it might not work so well when applied to the classics. He wrote, If Stanislavski's system is applied literally, it leads merely to realism, but applied selectively with discrimination, it can be made the grammar of all styles. Jeremy Geit, who was in the first class of the Old Vic School in 1946, and with whom I studied at the ART Institute in 1990, recalled, There was a man who instilled in me from the start that the secret of life was Zitrus, which is how I heard Saint-Denis' pronunciation of the truth. To continually search for, to continually explore and dig for the truth, not only in a theatrical text and in one's acting, but in all of life. Every time I enter a classroom, I hear his voice in my inner ear telling me to look for and try to reach the truth. Suzanne Bing's last years were spent living in rooms above the Vieux Colombier, partially paralyzed by a stroke and destitute. Relying on financial support from a small circle of friends, she had willingly transformed herself into Michelangelo's chisel, her words. While Capot played the role of Le Patron, she did the heavy lifting in class with the children and later the adult actors in training. We want to lift her up out of obscurity and reassign to her the lion's share of the credit for the development of this pedagogy which has been so far-reaching but we also must be fair to Capot. It really was his vision, his curious impulse to put children to play, thereby unlocking secrets of imagination and creativity. In the end, Jacques Capot was a mess. He was led around by his libido, getting himself and the women he seduced by his brilliance in trouble. And then, eating himself alive with Catholic guilt and self-doubt as the false starts and failures accumulated. 
His last days were spent burnishing his legend and legacy as a great man of the theater. He had undermined his own project by driving away many of the talented artists who dared challenge his authority. Instead, he craved and claimed acolytes and functionaries. Suzanne Bing and Michel Saint-Denis willingly played those roles, buying into the narrative of the great man's genius. They tirelessly executed on his vision, even as he himself ran out of steam and gave up. Toward the end of his life, he did briefly run the Comédie Française, but it was 1940 and the Nazis were in charge. Suzanne Bing, though a practicing Catholic, was half-Jewish and wore the Yellow Star. Capot resigned his position at the Comédie and retreated with his wife to their home in Pernand, where so much history had been made. He died in 1949, Suzanne Bing in 1967. In a final note of irony, today the little theater on the Vieux du Colombier is owned and operated by the Comédie Française. The next and final episode is my attempt to pull together the many strands of this sprawling story. In episode 21, I'll speak with a few key players from both the earliest days of Juilliard as well as its current director. That's episode 21, and it's next on Gurus. Gurus, the story of acting, was written by me, Jeff Zinn, and is produced by Dwight Street Book Club, Rollin Jones, Adam O'Byrne, Tony Manna, and Nicholas Hassong with help from Mary Seidel. Music, editing, and mixing are by Jay Hagenbuckle. Very special thanks to Brendan Hughes. For a complete list of sources, including books, articles, and other podcasts, and a treasure trove of images, visit our website, storyofacting.com. Thanks for listening.